All right. Well, this is Pastor Brian. This is our 4G podcast. A couple things before I jump in. We're recording this in the mezzanine. We have a studio up here. The Deacons approved some funds for this, and I'm looking at Dave Bennett, our tech director. Uh, Normally seated next to me is Pastor Kyle. He's getting some much-deserved time away this week. Uh, And so I'm going to go solo. Uh, It is storming out when we're recording this, so if you hear some thunder, uh, that actually will be okay because it it could be a sound effect that would kind of bring us to our topic today. Instead of reflecting on the message from last weekend, and there's a lot to reflect on, and giving a preview for next, I want to, well, I want to speak into what we're all thinking about today. And that's what's happening in the Middle East, in particular in Israel and in Gaza. Uh, I'm entitling this podcast, From Haman to Hamas. And as you've been watching the news, uh, no doubt you have been searching for words, as reporters have. I've heard words like raw evil. One reporter called it depravity. That's a theological word. To describe the terrorist attacks in Israel as horrendous, atrocious, sickening, revolting, massacre. Women have been raped and their dead bodies paraded as trophies. Just today, I'm recording this on Wednesday. Uh, Today is October 11th. Uh, President Biden said this about the murder and the beheading of babies. This was an act of sheer evil. Well, what I want to do in this podcast in a limited way, because uh, admittedly, I have taken some time to think this through, um, and it's all in real time, so news is changing even as we're going. But I thought it would be helpful just to give a kind of biblical, historical perspective. And I want us to think back, way back, to when Satan was kicked out of heaven. And ever since he's been at war uh, with God, the things of God, and against the people of God. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan, speaking through a serpent, tempts Eve, and through Eve's fall and ultimately Adam's fall, uh, he has plunged the whole race into sin. And we're living with those effects to this day. And because of the fall, we see murder and lying and cheating and terrorism and our creation out of whack, and just so many things uh, that go wrong and have gone wrong in the world. So that's Genesis 3. I now move to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice the word land. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Now check this, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now as we fast forward through the biblical timeline, we're introduced to Esau and then to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was determined to wipe out God's people and made life miserable for them. And now I want to move to the Amalekites. The Amalekites were known for unrelenting brutality toward the Israelites with an attack at Rephidim. They killed women and children. King Saul was given the job of destroying the Amalekites, but he allowed King Agag to live. And as a result, the Amalekites harass and plunder the Israelites for hundreds of years. Interestingly, the the last mention of the Amalekites is found in the book of Esther, where Haman, a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag, threatens to annihilate all the Jews in Persia, modern-day Iran. Well, let's consider Haman. I'm going to skip over some parts, but I encourage you to read the book of Esther. One day when Mordecai, he's a, a Jewish follower, was sitting outside the king's gate. He overheard two disgruntled employees talk about assassinating the king. Mordecai alerted Esther, she's queen, and she warned her husband. The king had the two conspirators killed. This incident was recorded in the official royal records, but Mordecai was not rewarded. That's an important detail to keep in mind because it will come up again. Well, the king is fearing for his life, so he institutes this massive shakeup in his government. And he promotes this power-hungry politician named Haman to be his right-hand man. That's in Esther 3. Haman's a slimy character. He's known as an Agagite. As you trace his family tree through the pages of Scripture, we discover that an Agagite was an Amalekite. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau and were enemies of God's people. Exodus chapter 17, verse 16. So historically, King Saul was ordered by God to completely destroy the Amalekites, but he disobeyed. As a result, he let King Agag live. Saul lost his kingdom. And now, thousands of miles away in Persia, Iran, and 700 years later, Saul's sin is still causing problems for God's people. This is a reminder that we must deal decisively with sin in our life or it will keep tripping us up, even affecting generations to come. Now, Haman was a prideful person. He demanded that everyone would literally bow before him, and everyone did except Mordecai in chapter 3, verse 2. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So Mordecai's refusal to revere really got under the skin of Haman. Verse 5 tells us he was filled with fury. So, listener, knowing a bit about Haman's heritage helps us understand why he hated Mordecai, a Jew, so much. Interestingly, Mordecai's lineage is traced to King Saul. So when Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews in the empire. Haman's anti-Semitic feelings dominate him as he puts together a plan for an ancient holocaust. Now, interestingly, 
Hamas in their charter is committed to exterminating Israel. So back to Esther. Haman bribed the king in order to get him to issue a decree to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews on a set day in the spring. He was basically funding the extermination of the Jewish race from the face of the earth. This day of slaughter was determined by the rolling of dice, which in Hebrew is pur, P-U-R. That provides the background for the Feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M, which is still celebrated today. So when Mordecai hears about this, he stops eating, he begins to weep and wail loudly. Chapter 4, verse 1 says he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai pleads with Esther to use her position to protect the Jews. And Esther um, initially is afraid. Here's why. No one knew she was Jewish. And she hadn't talked to the king for 30 days. And then Mordecai says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such as this. So basically, Esther, don't think you'll escape the Holocaust when it happens. Secondly, if you don't do something, God will send someone else. But thirdly, God has positioned you exactly where he wants you for his purposes. Well, Esther's faith and courage kick in. She instructs all the Jews in Susa to spend three days fasting. So by calling people to fast, she acknowledges that she needs the help only God can provide. After she replenishes her spiritual tank, she tells Mordecai that she'll go into the king. She decides to risk her life. She says courageously, I love this, if I perish, I perish. She's like an ancient Oscar Schindler. She's willing to take a stand, put her life on the line in order to benefit others. So let's fast forward. Haman's wife and his friends come up with a great idea. They encourage Haman to erect some scaffolding, 75 feet high, ask the king to hang Mordecai from it. Haman's thrilled. They construct it right away. The plot thickens. Someone else can't sleep that night. Uh, the king can't sleep. And so, well, he asks to get a copy of the official records. One of his servants is reading that to him. Maybe he thinks that'll put him to sleep. But as he starts to doze off, he remembers, he hears what Mordecai had done. And here's how God works this all out. If you read through the book of Esther, Esther identifies herself as a Jew. She says to the king, my people, we have been sold, I and my people. Haman, everything turns. Haman now, things are going south for him. He's let out of the palace and he is hung on the death machine he had constructed for Mordecai. The word gallows refers to impaling. The king then supplied weapons and soldiers so the Jews could defend themselves. Because of Esther's stand, her people are now saved. God always has saved his people because they are his people. All right? Fast forward, the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 6. So we go from Haman to Herod. We could call Herod the butcher. Of Bethlehem. King Herod's mad. The wise men had outwitted him. Listen to Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious 
And he sent and killed all the male children, catch this, in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The word tricked can also be translated as mocked, made a fool of. So he becomes furious, violently enraged, exceedingly indignant. He then does something worthy of Hitler or Stalin, orders the cold-blooded murder of all males babies less than two years of age. Herod the Great had become the butcher of Bethlehem. He's perhaps the ultimate oxymoron in history. Rich in what most of us consider valuable, he's totally bankrupt as a human being. Now notice, he's addicted to power, obsessed with possessions, he's focused on prestige. This also fulfills a prophecy in verses 17 and 18. Think of the news right now. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This text comes from Jeremiah 31.15. The context refers to people getting ready to be sent into captivity. Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem. Historically, it was the holding place for Jewish captives as they were prepared for deportation to Babylon, much like Terezin was for prisoners before they were sent to Auschwitz. It's a time of exceeding anguish, widespread weeping, especially by mothers for their children. Rachel was known as the mother of the nation who died while giving birth to Benjamin. And while she's buried in Bethlehem in profound poetic imagery, her tears are figuratively spilling into the soil again as mothers are weeping and crying inconsolably. We see that right now in Israel as we learn of babies being beheaded, blood-soaked car seats. Man, The Babylonians themselves slaughtered children. Several centuries later, Herod's hatred leads to the deaths of babies in and around Bethlehem. Some 40 years later, up to a million people were killed in AD 70, including infants and children, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And then Hitler exterminated some 6 million Jews. There's always been hatred. For, Jew, for the Jewish people. Are you aware that Rachel is still weeping today? If you lean in, you can hear her loud lamentation for the nearly 65 million babies that have been aborted in our country since 1973. By the way, I'm glad Biden called the beheading of babies pure evil. But maybe he's missing the irony, the tragic irony. That 65 million babies have died in their mother's wombs. And so we move from Haman to Herod to Hitler and the Holocaust. And now, today, Hamas and Hezbollah. Both funded by Iran. Goes all the way back to Persia. Goes all the way back to Haman and the hatred can be traced all the way back through the Amalekites, back to Esau. And so as we consider these events that are still unfolding, it's helpful to consider where they're all linked. And behind this is Satan, the evil one. Um, We read in John 8, 44, Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth 
because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Second thing I want us to notice, even though you don't see the name of God in the book of Esther, you can see God at work in amazing ways in protecting and preserving his people. Granted, a lot of Jewish people today are secular. We don't hear a lot of talk about God, but God is at work behind the scenes protecting and preserving his people. I want to now fast forward. We started in Genesis in this quick overview, and I want to take us to the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, listen, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. As we consider what's going on in our world today, I wrote a Facebook post a couple days ago and thought it might be good for us to consider these truths. Do you feel unsettled and churned up today? Does your news feed feed fear into your life? Do you wonder what in the world is going on? Are you anxious about life or filled with fear about the future? Friends, it's time like times like these we must go to God's word for perspective and practical help. Here then are 10 biblical lessons we can apply which will help us stay grounded even when the news is frightening. Number one, God is powerful and in control. The Bible tells us that God works wonders even when we can't see them and especially when we don't understand what has happened. Isaiah 40, verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Number two, God loves to bring good out of bad. This principle helps us see that with God at the center of life, there's always reason to hope. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Number three, things will get worse before they get better. As we get closer to the end of the world, 2 Timothy 3.1 says that things will get increasingly worse. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Jesus said in Matthew 24.6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Number four, live one day at a time. One of the best ways to beat anxiety is to simply focus on the day in front of us. Matthew 6.34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Number five, we are made for a different place. For the believer in Jesus Christ, this world is not our home. 2 Corinthians 5.1 reminds us we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. Number six, Jesus meets us in the storms of life. So no matter what you're going through right now, maybe your anxiety has peaked or what hurricanes will hit your heart in the future, remember that when the storms show up, so does the Savior. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, 
an ever-present help in trouble. Number seven, storms, hard times can lead to bitterness or deeper belief. So guard your heart when you're hurting and don't let bitterness put down roots in your soul. Hebrews 12:15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Number eight, Jesus is coming again. After Jesus ascended into heaven, we read this announcement in Acts 1. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Number nine, the Bible is filled with predictive prophecy. When asked about what signs to look for which will tell us the second coming of Christ is near, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 21, 10 and 11. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. Yeah, man, thousands of people, I, I believe, were killed just a couple days ago in Afghanistan with an earthquake. And in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. In Luke 21, 26, when referring to the signs that his return is near, Jesus described people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Man, just seeing interviews in Israel. A few verses later, he said, Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. I don't have time to go into this, but I would encourage you to read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 and keep our eyes in tune uh, to the north. And we're already hearing some things happening. Number 10, get yourself ready. I'm reminded of the passage in Luke 13 where some people described an event similar to 9-11 to Jesus. And people have equated the massacre in Israel to 9-11. I think it's worse than that. I think it's the Holocaust. But then we read a number in Luke 13, a number of innocent people were annihilated. Well, Jesus then brought up another situation in which 18 people were killed when a tower fell on them. In both instances, I think we always want an answer to the why question, of course. But listen to what Jesus said. He personalizes it. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And so, listener, are you ready right now? Are you prepared for what will come next? If you haven't repented and received Christ yet, do it now before it's too late. The only safe place is to find your refuge in the Redeemer. I like the insight of Corey Ten Boom. Look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed. Look to Christ and be at rest. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. I'm going to end by uh, leading in a prayer, but before that, I've uh, received some information from Jews for Jesus. This is a ministry that focuses on Jewish people, helping them see that the Messiah has come. His name is Yeshua, Jesus, and they are ministering in Israel. They minister all over the world, and uh, many of their staff are separated from their families, and they don't even know whether all of their loved ones are safe or not. Uh, they report that their missions teams are stuck, and they can't get into or out of Israel safely right now. 
Dozens of Jews for Jesus missionaries and their families are waiting to hear from the Israeli government to know whether they'll be called up to serve in the IDF reserves in Gaza and throughout Israel. Perhaps that's already happened. And then a building just a few doors down from the Moshe Rosen Ministry Center was destroyed by rocket fire. Um, and then they say this, and we're seeing this in, um, in Europe. Uh, we see protests in our country. They write this, the situation in Israel is going to impact the safety and security of every Jewish person in the world. I'm also friends with a guy named Levi Hazen. Uh, we partnered with his ministry um, in last year in Life in Messiah for our prophecy conference. And I just want to read, I sent him an email and I just asked him for some things to pray for. He said, thanks for checking in. This is tough stuff. The brutality of babies beheaded, women raped, children taken hostage and held in cages. The ongoing fires of rockets indiscriminately is all too much. Here are some prayer requests that they're distributing. Pray for protection, strength, and courage for Life and Messiah staff and associates in Israel as they minister to their neighbors. Pray for the deliverance of hostages taken from Israel into Gaza. Pray for God's comfort and peace for Israelis. Ask that the pain and grief they are experiencing will drive them to the God of comfort. Pray for Palestinian civilians, many of whom are suffering from the repercussions of their leaders' attack, Hamas, the terrorists. Pray for Jewish communities around the world, especially in Europe, who are facing violent anti-Semitism in response to the war. And ask God to confuse the plans of Hamas and burden the terrorists' hearts with the atrocities they are committing. Ask God to thwart their evil efforts and protect the innocent. And pray for God's redemptive work in the hearts of believers in Israel, Gaza, and around the world. May our outlook and response to this war be shaped by his truth, holiness, and compassion. I'm going to now close uh, with prayer. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, when King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, was surrounded by armies that had allied against him, he cried out in prayer. This is what he said. For we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us, nor... Do we know what to do? But our eyes are upon you. When we don't know what to say, it's always good to pray. Almighty God, on a day when many in Israel were celebrating a festival called the Joy of the Torah, as they were finishing the Feast of Tabernacles with singing and rejoicing, the streets in Israel are now filled with wailing and mourning. The blood of children, women, civilians. Lord of hosts, you tell us how to pray in Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure within your walls. We pray for protection and the release of those who have been taken hostage. We ask you to comfort those who've lost loved ones. May you bring to mind the promise of Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We pray for wisdom for governmental and military leaders in Israel. May you give the U.S. governmental leaders wisdom and lead them to make righteous decisions that will lead to peace. We pray that you would confuse and confound the plans of Hamas and Hezbollah to the north. We pray that this would not spark conflict in other areas and that other nations would choose the way that would lead to peace. May you embolden your followers in that region to share the life-changing message of the gospel and offer acts of compassion to all people who are in deep mourning. God, we know Isaiah 40:22 says, you sit enthroned above the circle of the earth. Psalm 46, 9 reminds us that you make war cease to the end of the earth. You break the bow and you shatter the spear. In the meantime, in verses 10 and 11, you challenge us to trust you. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In a chapter filled with end times prophecy, you declare in Ezekiel 38:23, "So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord." May you show forth your greatness and your holiness as you make yourself known among all the nations. May you ultimately use this conflict to cause people, Jewish people, Palestinians, Iranians, to turn to Yeshua, Jesus, and embrace him as their Messiah and their Lord. And we pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. I guess we could call this a special uh, edition of our 4G podcast. But inherent in that is our fourth G, and that's to go with the gospel. And we're called to take the gospel first uh, to those who are Jewish and also to Gentiles all over the world, all people groups. uh, We must be doing that. And so thank you for tuning in. If you find this helpful, uh, go ahead and give us a review, uh, give us a rating. That makes it easier for people uh, to find this when they're searching for it. Uh, We'll talk to you next time.